Good evening. Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Uh, I'm Brian Ball. Uh, Jay Strother and I co-teach uh, uh, the, the semester. And uh, good to see everybody tonight. Wow. This, I pray it, this is really encouraging. Y'all realize we're teaching church history, right? Just, yeah. Don't forget, please stay. Please stay. No, we're, we're glad to have you kicking off. We did, we did a year of systematic theology. I hope you found that a blessing last year. And this semester, we're going to do church history. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me. Um, Let's, let's pray. We'll, we'll get started toward this. Father God, we're thankful. We're thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful that you work through time, Father. And, and let us see your hand, right? That's what we're going to look for this semester, Father, is how your hand is present, right, in, in all of these things, in all of these times, in all of these eras. And so, Father, give us the heart and the eyes to see you. No matter what we're studying, no matter what we're looking at, that we see Christ, that we see you and your powerful workings uh, toward our salvation and toward our redemption. Uh, it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I know do the technical stuff. Right up, up we've got a, um, okay, this is the Slido. Yeah, it's a Slido one. Um, okay, if you, want, if you want to ask questions, you can take out your phone or tablet and either uh, scan that barcode or go to slido.com and enter the room number 303-3677. That becomes more of an eye test every year. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we do question Q&A there at the, there at the end. Uh, I, I want to talk just for a second. I, I am not a historian. I'm an engineer, most applied mathematician, as most of you know. I grew up in Tullahoma, Tennessee, uh, which is the Arnold Air Force Base, which is one of the world's most advanced air ballistic and gas dynamic testing ranges in the world. Everybody I knew there was either a scientist or an engineer. Uh, when I grew up, it was the second most educated co community in the country. Uh, it had more doctors than either Nashville or Memphis, and it was 9,000 people. So everybody was an engineer or a scientist. So I went to college, and I didn't realize you could go to college and do something other than science and engineering. So it was a great shock to me my first week there when I sat down across from a gentleman who self-identified as a history major. And so I asked him sincerely, so do you just wait for something to happen and write it down? He didn't think that was very funny. Um, but I, had, I just had no, no understanding of what that was. In the great irony of how God likes to laugh at, and I come from a family of engineers and scientists, my oldest son got a major in English with minors in African-American studies, gender studies, journalism, uh, faith and public values, and international public policy. My youngest son is getting a degree in history, ironically, with four minors in French, Arabic, Jewish... Jewish, Middle, Middle Eastern, Jewish, Islamic studies, and um, political science. Not one of those is science or engineering. Okay, I've asked the Lord if there's unrepentant sin in my life. But the, uh, the history major answered my question after kind of calming down a little bit. And he said, we study history so that we understand better where we are and we can walk forward more wisely. And so as we start to look at church history, as we, because we look at history in a unique way, right? Because we know Jesus is Lord. We know the Bible is true, right? We know all things were made by him, for him, and through him, right? We know that no authority is in place except what God put in place. And when that's the established framework that you start looking at history, it's a whole different picture, right? And so what we pray is that we come out of this, we understand where we are better. And find ways to walk more, more wisely with the Lord. Amen? Cool. 
Jay, you ready to kick it off? Yes, sir. Thank you, Brian. And uh, it's great to have you all back with us. I see a few new faces. And so this is our Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, we call it Coffee House Theology because uh, we uh, have studied theology uh, in various ways, shapes, and forms over the years. But we call it Coffee House because we like to interact. And we now have coffee, uh, thanks to the Wilsons who show up early to make it. So thank you for that. Uh, to Mike, and um, it's uh, uh, because we've grown and we can no longer just meet in a little classroom together and just dialogue and discuss. We have you guys submit questions, uh, but uh, it's an opportunity for us to grow, dig into things we don't have time to get into on Sunday morning. Uh, and so uh, some of you know that when I was in college, I got a degree uh, to teach history uh, and uh, to be a coach, uh, even when I felt called to ministry. Thought I'd be a bivocational guy because the churches in Illinois where I come from are much smaller, uh, but the Lord led us to the but I've always had a passion to not only preach, but also to teach. Uh, and just church history is one of those areas of interest for me, of course, where a lot of things intersect. Uh, and so some of you laughed because the very first header on our page is why people hate history, um, because we have to kind of deal with that. Uh, and so we just want to deal with it up front, uh, why history uh, is kind of a stumbling block, why it seems boring uh, to a lot of people. And first, we have to admit we've got some personal bias, right? Uh, we think history started when we were born uh, and that the world revolves around us. Uh, it's a couple of the books that I read actually reference this same cartoon. Uh, and so it's probably because there are so few cartoons that have to do with church history. But of course, it's Peanuts, Charles Schultz, uh, and you've got Charlie Brown's sister there working on her essay, and it's on church history. She writes in cursive, so if you're younger than 30 years old, you won't be able to read it, um, since they don't teach that in schools anymore. So let me read it for you. She says, when writing about church history, we have to go back to the very beginning. Our pastor was born in 1930, uh, she says. Now, your pastor isn't that old, right? Your pastor was born in 1975. Uh, but, uh, but the point is clear is that for most of us, history, right, that feels like a long time ago, like when our pastors, our parents, when those people were born, that's about as far back as we go. Uh, and so we have to be careful that we don't commit what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery that we believe that we are not only the center of church history, but we've got it all figured out. And the people in the past were just old superstitious folks who didn't have a clue about the way the world worked. Uh, as we'll see, Ecclesiastes is pretty clear. There's really nothing new under the sun. And human nature is human nature. And sure, there is technology. And, and by the time we get to the very end of the, the semester, uh, we will talk about the future of the church. I've been reading a really fascinating book about artificial intelligence uh, and its impact on the church and the future of our culture uh, by someone at the uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. So we're going to think about those things as well. Uh, so the details may change, but the fundamental issues of human nature do not. And so we kind of commit chronological snobbery when we say things like, well, that guy passed away, he's history, right? Or, you know, something that happened a couple years ago. Well, that's ancient history now. Stephen Mansfield, who's an author and wrote a book that I stole his name for my subtitle tonight, More Than Day, uh, Dates and Dead People, uh, is actually a member at our Brentwood campus. He's an author, and uh, I borrowed some of his ideas to kind of weave into this outline, but he uses this phrase, we feel like we're lost in a cemetery. Uh, if you've ever wandered around through the headstones, you know, it's, it's a curious experience. You're seeing all of these people, and you see their names, and, and you see their, their dates of birth and their dates of death, and you begin to wonder, right, what was their story? 
story. What, what did they do? Sometimes there's symbols, you know, some of them were soldiers. Sometimes there's flags or flowers or people have created a little memorial to them there. And you begin to realize all of these people had a history. All of these people had a story. And so, but because we're just wandering around without any context for it, that's often the way that we feel when we read or study history. The other reality when it comes to people hating history is I think that people don't. People actually love history itself. Ever watched a movie about the Titanic or Pearl Harbor or any major historical event, Gladiator, anybody? We love movies about history. Now, miniseries, Ken Burns, anybody ever seen one of his miniseries? You, man, you wanna suck me in, right? If you're flipping channels and that's on PBS, like I'm, I'm in, like if I don't have anything else to do. Uh, man, there's just something about uh, the way he tells the story of history so thoroughly. There's an entire cable station, of course, uh, that's devoted to history, although I don't know how historical a lot of the programs on there actually are anymore. But we take vacations, don't we, to go see historic sites. I grew up in Illinois, and the title on our license plates is The Land of Who? Lincoln. And so you have all these sites in Illinois devoted to the history of Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, the infamous Lincoln slept here just because the dude stayed there a night. It becomes a, a historical site. And so we, we honor history. And when we travel to different places and we want to see things that happen. So what we actually hate is poorly taught history and poorly written history textbooks. I saw this bias, right? When I was going into education, I would tell people I was going to be a history teacher. And their very next question was, what sport? <laughs> Translation, right? next to PE teachers, you know, you, you became a history teacher because it was kind of an easy subject to teach, throw a book and some slides at your kids, right? And then you could go coach your sport. Now it was true, I coached basketball and baseball. Uh, but uh, it was just interesting to me that it was just automatically assumed, like if you're a science teacher, Brian, then you were a serious teacher. But if you're a history teacher, not so much. Uh, and so that's one of the, the biases that we have, but we have that for a reason, because sadly, a lot of times our teachers were ill-equipped. They would give us dates, they would give us facts, but they wouldn't help us understand how these stories fit into the scope of history, uh, into the scope of the human story. And to me, history was always fascinating because it was the story of why things are the way they they are. And we all grow up with these questions. And as it applies to church history, as I put in the email today, right? Why is there an Eastern and Western church? Why, why do some churches celebrate Easter on a different date? Uh, why are there Protestants and Catholics? Like, what, what, we're, Why do we have so many different denominations in the United States? Uh, my experience as a youth pastor prepared me well uh, because kids will ask all of those questions and randomly, not in any kind of linear order. You have to be prepared for all of it uh, at the same time. But, but we naturally have these questions. And so if you're a good teacher of history, your job is to help understand, uh, help people understand the why behind the what uh, and the how. And of course, our textbooks today, many of them have a bias. They have an agenda that they're written with. All writing has that. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that in a moment, why worldview is so important. And that's our fifth one, as a matter of fact, is worldview. Uh, secular humanism, of course, embraced the theory of evolution, and that's made its way into much of our thinking uh, in schools and textbooks, even in um, trade books, published books uh, that you'll find in the bookstore. So if all of life fundamentally is a meaningless accident and there's no design or purpose, well, then there's little motivation to study the past because everything is just random. It's just chance. So why study history? Uh, and so I believe undergirding a lot of this uh, is an unbiblical worldview, and that's part, of course, what we're going to address uh, as we go, as we look at history from a theological perspective. And so I hope you see the connects as we go this year between what we studied last year, systematic theology, and 
church history because there should be a lot of overlap in your mind because our theology should inform our study of history. And here's the first reason why. Because we believe that God is sovereign. God rules and reigns over history. He has not taken his hand off the wheel. And I didn't put this in the handout, but you may want to write it in great big bold letters at the top of your page. History is his story, right? I mean, it's right there, even in our English version of the word. History is his story. And I know it's tempting at times when you look at headlines and you look at the way that the news is reported, uh, you look at the, the facts just kind of that come at us from all different directions, it's hard sometimes to trace out, well, what could God do with a mess like this? But then when we zoom out as we're going to do this semester and look at, at, at the big picture of history, all of a sudden you begin to realize that history is like this gigantic tapestry that God is weaving. I had the opportunity back in September to be in Turkey for a biblical study tour. And I'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks because I was walking around literally uh, and, and spending a lot of time thinking about the very context of the, the early centuries of the church. But one of the, the side visits we made was to a Turkish rug factory where they literally by hand create these beautiful rugs that are really tapestries. Uh, and by the way, some of these rugs cost more than my house. Uh, they're incredibly expensive because they weave them with this incredible silk. Uh, it takes some of these people uh, years to create some of these rugs. Um, some of the artists, of course, can do it in weeks or months. Uh, but it's a stunning process to watch. And they'll even allow you to sit down uh, and to try your hand at weaving a tapestry. Let me just tell you, I'm not good at it. Uh, I have no hand-eye coordination. Uh, but then you watch these, these Turkish peasant women who sit down and they just go, go to town, right? But, but as you know, if you've ever seen a tapestry from the backside, you see these different colors. You see these frays of thread. Sometimes you can begin to make out a shape or a picture. But then all of a sudden you turn that rug or that tapestry around and there's this incredibly intricate picture. It's just stunning. Uh, and, and even the different colors they use, they have all kinds of thread now that reflects light in different ways and they turn off the lights. Anyway, they did this whole demonstration for us and it was absolutely amazing. And, and history functions in much the same way. The individual dates and the stories and, and the wars and the things that happened and, and the people involved are like these different threads that are being woven. And I really would believe it won't be till eternity that we see the whole picture, right? As Paul says, right now, it's like we're looking through a glass darkly. We see in part, but in one day we will see in full. But, but that's really, the, the more you can learn to train yourself to see the big picture of history, you are looking at the picture that God is painting and that he's weaving. And so here's some verses that just remind us of this truth. God does what he wants with the people of the earth, Daniel chapter four. The most high God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. It's an important truth for us to remember. Romans 13, God establishes all government and all authority. Proverbs 21.1, God directs what kings and rulers do. Daniel 2.21, God puts rulers in place and disposes of them when he wants to. Acts 17, 26, where Paul is at Mars Hill, God determines, Paul tells them, where men live and the borders of nations. God also determines the time set for men in that same passage and also in Hebrews chapter nine. It is appointed man to die. And after that, the judgment. We all have a limited amount of time. God determines the time that we have to live. God even controls the weather. That's in the Psalms, in Psalm 147 and 148. God controls the times and the seasons. Again, Daniel chapter two. I love that verse right after that. It says that God knows even what is in the dark. What is hidden to us, God knows. 
So we don't have to fear, right? Because we're all afraid of the dark, but God's not afraid of what's there. He knows what's there and he helps us and reveals that to us. God controls the animals. Uh, Psalm verse, uh, chapter eight, verses six through eight. God creates disasters and prosperity. Isaiah chapter 45. And God even determines the, determines the outcome of wars. Proverbs 21, 31. So if you ever doubt it, and I know it's easy to do, but go to your Bible and read about what it says in God's sovereignty and how God is sovereign and how he rules and he reigns. And so not only does he rule history, but number two, he orchestrates history according to how he has determined that it ends. So we can understand history as a stage. Often when I travel in the Middle East, right, I describe Israel as, as an important place some people refer to it as the holy land, right? It's no more holy than anything else that God has created. It's all holy, right? It's all God's, it belongs to him. But why Israel is important is, is it is the stage of redemptive history. You go there and you can see these are the places where these events took place. And I remember I came back from my very first trip, Ella was five or six uh, to, to Israel. And uh, you know, I, I brought her a couple of little you know, artifacts, memorabilia from there. And she was like, daddy, you mean those places in the Bible are real? And you think about the mind through a little kid, right? You read storybooks, you read fairy tales, you read the Bible, you read all these things, you know? And so, and I was like, yes, such a simple, but such a profound truth. These things happen in history. And as we look throughout history, we will see, right, this evidence of the fact that history itself is a stage on which God is directing the action. And of course, the final act, the culmination of it all is what gives it its meaning. And so history is on the move. And deism teaches us, right, this idea that God just wound up the clock of the world. There are a lot of people who believe this. And even if they won't say they believe this, they believe this functionally. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. But they believe in a God who just wound up the world and just set it down and let it go. Instead, the Bible is very clear that God has his hands on history. Isaiah 46.10, he knows the end from the beginning. And so he doesn't just wind it up and lets it run down. Instead, God is guiding it, orchestrating it. And you and I have a role in this history as well, don't we? Ephesians chapter two is an important passage for us to understand not only our salvation, but also our role and our place in God's plan. You are saved by grace, Paul reminds us. We're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. So we're not only saved from our sin by the grace of God through faith, but we are saved to something as well, for we are his workmanship. As I've told you before, that word for workmanship is where we get the English word poem. You are God's masterpiece, you are his work of art, poema. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. So isn't it interesting? We are saved from our works. We cannot save ourselves. But we are saved to do good works. Good works that what? That God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Do you think it changes a young person's life when you look them in the eye and you say, you know what? You're not a meaningless cosmic accident. But God created you for good works that he prepared for you in advance. Now, I'm careful when I use this word, right, because of the prosperity gospel connotation with it, but God does give us a destiny, right? He has prepared these good works ahead of us. If we speak of it in biblical terms, right, then we're on solid ground there. That, that he knows what he created us for. 
and what he's shaped and molding us towards in his image and his plan. So God orchestrates history and we get to have a part in that story. We're not the center of the story. Humanism will teach you that, right? The story is all about you and you are the hero of the story. Nope, not in the Christian worldview. Jesus is the hero of the story. But we get to be a part of his story, that the creator of the universe would look at us and say, I want you for what I'm doing. Not because I need you, God doesn't need any one of us, does he? But because I want you, by my grace, to have the joy and the pleasure and the, and the opportunity to participate on the team with me. You know, when I was a kid growing up in Illinois, Michael Jordan was all the rage. The Chicago Bulls were in their heyday back then. And I always compared this to like, if you're playing a game of pickup basketball and Michael Jordan was on your team, <laughs> is he gonna win the game? Yeah. But can you imagine being on the playground and Michael Jordan says, man, you, Craig, I want you on my team, right? That would be a pretty cool experience. In the same way, God says, I want you on my team. He's gonna win. He's gonna fulfill his purposes. He's going to carry history to his conclusion, but he allows you and I to participate. He allows our story to be woven into his great story of what he's doing so that our lives have dignity and meaning and purpose. So remember that God knows the end from the beginning. He has already prepared ahead of time what he has called us and determined for us to do. And so number three, and we're gonna get a little deep here for a minute, right? History itself actually gets its meaning from from eternity. History is not eternal. You know that. History is not going to go on and on forever. History, the Bible tells us, is moving towards a conclusion. Now, I need to make this point because it's a little nuanced. When we talk about history and its cycles, we know, right, that history does, quote, repeat itself in the sense of Ecclesiastes, right? There's nothing new under the sun. The same themes keep emerging over and over again. But there's a difference between what the Bible teaches and it's that man repeats the same patterns, but history is in a loop, but that loop is moving towards its conclusion. And the Eastern view of the world in which life is a wheel and it just spins over and over and over again. Okay, there's a difference between the two and we need to understand that. So there, there are cycles that happen in history, but ultimately God is moving those cycles forward towards the earth's ultimate conclusion, towards history's ultimate end. In the Eastern religions and mysticism, right, there's just this wheel. And really you're ground to dust by the wheel. That's ultimately what they teach. You can't get off it, right? It just keeps grinding and grinding and grinding. It's much more hopeful uh, in the Christian worldview. So we need to remember that God lives in an eternity in which everything is now. There's no past or future. Psalm 93, Isaiah 57, history, as I said, will not go on forever, but God will. But interestingly enough, God put our bodies in history, but he put eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3, 11. It's why man is always seeking the mystical. It's why we are always seeking the transcendent. So we're never fully comfortable in this world because this world is not our ultimate home. And so it's why throughout all history, men are trying to reach out for the eternal. And Mansfield uses an illustration that I think is really helpful. I want you to imagine the vastness of the space of this room as eternity. And what you and I live in, right, is this rolled up piece of paper that looks like a pirate scope, right? No, really, it looks like a tube. Because here's the idea. You and I live in this tube. This is what physicists call the space-time continuum. There's a beginning to history as we know it, and ultimately there will be an end. But God himself, right, dwells in eternity. 
So he sees this whole tube at exactly the same time. Now I know for some of you, right? Smoke's come out your ears. See, I told you history wasn't gonna be boring, right? But we need to keep this in mind because number one, it reminds us of the vastness of God because his eternity is bigger than this room, right? It's bigger than this world. (laughs) You and I, we're in this little tiny tube floating through the vastness of forever called the space-time continuum. And you and I, our life within this, I mean, this is the entire history of the universe as we know it. You and I are what? We're a speck. We're barely a vapor, the Bible tells us. We're a mist. And so we need to be humbled to remember how great our God is and how small we are. But this also helps us know, isn't it amazing As David says in Psalm 8, who am I that you are mindful of me, right? That God has a plan for us, that we are God's workmanship created for good works, that little me in this little speck, right, floating around in all of eternity, that God cares about each and every one of us, that he's made a way for the gospel, that his good news to get to each of us. And then he has a plan and a purpose for us in this tube, however long or however short that time is, right? It's all a gift. And we need to remember that. So in comparison to eternity, history is short. It's important for us to remember, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter four, that our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us a glory that is far greater by comparison. Think about that. That we got this little speck of time that we're in this too, but we'll have the rest of all eternity, right? To be with God and in his presence. Conversely, isn't it terrifying to think about the fact that we have this little speck of history, this little speck of time that God has given us and the decisions that we make will ripple throughout eternity. And then if we choose to reject him, we will choose an eternity in the darkness, an eternity separated from him. That what we do in this one speck, this one moment, this vapor of a life that we have, that that stretches for an eternity. So we need to understand that and keep that in perspective as well. So even when we talk about the scope of history, we're just talking about this too. (laughs) There's something much, much bigger that's beyond that. And it's God and his vastness. And we need to remember that in the middle of that, number four, history is a battleground between two spiritual kingdoms. If you got your Bibles, look at me at Genesis chapter three, all the way back to the beginning of the story. In Genesis chapter one, God creates and it is what? Very good, right? It is a good creation. It is a good world. It is shalom. Everything is in harmony. People are getting along, right? Adam and Eve are placed in the garden. Adam is given dignity. He's given purpose. He has made the gardener of the garden of Eden, the greatest, most spectacular garden the world has ever known. He gets the privilege and honor, again, of being on God's team. He's lonely compared to all the other animals who have a mate, so God creates for him a woman. Again, he writes the world's first love song, a little Hebrew poetry right there, right? This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and you have this beautiful picture. And then the serpent. And Adam and Eve listen. And that first question, that's the question by which all other questions stem, right? Did God really say? And with that one question, Satan undermines the goodness of God. He plays into Adam and Eve's greatest fears, right? That God's holding out on us. And so they give in to temptation 
disaster ensues. What they thought would be a dream, we're gonna be gods who know everything just like God, instead becomes a nightmare. God comes walking in the garden, just as he always have. Now, Adam hides. He hides, why? Because he's naked. He's ashamed. And as I learned moving to the South, there's a difference between naked, which means you have no clothes on, and naked, which means you have no clothes on and you're up to no good, right? So N-E-K-K-I-D, all right? So Adam is in trouble. He is ashamed, guilt, shame, all of the things. And then you begin to see God address these. And so he addresses the man who then proceeds to try to throw his wife under the bus, which never happens these days, right? It's the woman who, by the way, God, you gave to be with me. So he tries to blame God for his sin. And so, right, what God does is he turns to the woman, what have you done? And then the woman says, the devil made me do it. And God turns to the serpent and says this, and this is massively important in verse 15. I will put hostility. That's the Hebrew word for war. I will put warfare between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So some fascinating things embedded in the Hebrew poetry there, right? One is Adam and Eve were gonna have children. There's a blessing hidden even in that curse, right? The human race was gonna go on. As I told you before, if I'm God, I'm done with the human experiment called man. I gave you a perfect setting. I didn't even give you 10 commandments. I gave you one and you broke it. Human beings, done forever. I don't need you, right? To which you are glad I'm not God or we wouldn't be here. But God being merciful says the human race is gonna go on. But guess what? It's gonna be a struggle between who? Satan? and his fallen demons, and the offspring of Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve are going to have children, but it's gonna be war. We forget that, don't we? We forget because we desensitize ourselves to it. We inoculate ourselves to it. We fill our lives with distractions and entertainments. We try to buffer ourselves in every way. But we forget that when your feet hit the floor in the morning, you are stepping into a cosmic battle that God said was going to be from this moment until the moment he stepped back on the stage in the second coming of Jesus. And so it's a fight. But here is what theologians call the proto-evangelion or the first gospel. This little prophecy he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. You see, that was a prophecy about the Messiah to come, the first one. Translation, even this didn't take God off by surprise. It didn't catch him off guard. And so God already had a plan to redeem mankind. That would be to send a savior who would one day crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would strike at him, right? Would make sure that he died on a cross. But when Jesus was resurrected, he crushed the head of the serpent forever. So we are in that stage of redemptive history. When it comes to where we're at in the tube, right? We are now in the part after the Messiah and the part that is quickly winding itself. If you ask me, right, we're right about here, right? We're getting closer and closer to the end. And do you know what that means? Guess whose doom is certain at the end of this tube? Satan's. He'll be locked in the abyss, Revelation tells us, forever. So guess what? He's really mad and his time's running short. So all he can do is make a mess of things with the time that he has left. And so he's working overtime right now, I believe, attacking the home, attacking the church, persecuting believers all over the world, right? Trying to get every way he can into our schools, into our government, into our communities to make a mess of things. 
Why? Because it's all he can do with the time that he has left. And that time is drawing short. And so we need to remember that. That this kingdom, right? Satan's fallen kingdom of darkness, it tries to keep every way away, everybody away from God's kingdom through false miracles, false angels, false Christ, false gospels, false gods. All these verses in the Bible support that. Satan's kingdom is powerful from you and I's perspective, but it doesn't hold a candle to the power of Christ. And so we need to know that, but we need to know where we live at the story. We live in between the already and the not yet. Jesus has already won the victory over Satan on the cross and in the resurrection, and yet he hasn't returned. And so we live in that moment. So when you start thinking about history as a spiritual battleground, you begin to look at the past from an entirely different perspective. Let me kind of give an obvious example, right? We know about Adolf Hitler. We know about the Nazis. We know about World War II. We know about all of those things. But what if behind all of that was a very real enemy? who made sure that the philosophy of elitism, of Nazism, right, was woven into the fabric of the German culture during that era? What if the enemy wants to produce hate and fear? What if he wanted to be sure that God's chosen people, the Jews, were killed, and if the church in Germany could be compromised, where, by the way, most critical Christian scholarship came from 100 years ago? What if the church could be compromised, right? What if... And if you read your history books carefully, you'll know just how into the occult and Satan worship Hitler and his minions were. And so all of a sudden you begin to realize, right, that's not just, right, a battle that happened by accident. That was a battle of opposing powers, that there is always in the spiritual realm, right, a battle that is taking place. Sometimes it feels very mundane, right? Sometimes it feels like a Wednesday morning, right? We're battling to just get up and go to work and go to school and do those things. Battling for, for the hearts of our kids and, and we're battling for, for wise choices and all of those kind of things. But that's a spiritual battle. But also in the greatest battle, so to speak, that we know, there is a demonic influence. There is an angelic influence. There is a spiritual battle between darkness and light that's taking place. And all of a sudden, when you begin to look back at history's events, you begin to realize this is what's taking place. And you begin to think about history differently. There's a reason that we're drawn to these epic movies and books because what they lay bare for us, right, is a representation like Lord of the Rings of the very real spiritual battle that's actually being fought all around us all of the time. But we see it. We see the darkness and the light. We see the swords and the battles. We see the dragons and the kings and the people, right, the ordinary people trying to make a difference in in the, the story. We see all of those things on display. It's why my English professor in college said often, as a Christian from a Christian worldview, we see the best truth in good fiction. Isn't that an interesting statement? Because a good author will be able to draw out those themes and draw our attention to these biblical eternal themes so that we can see them. So it's important. Theologically informed history helps us. Here's our next section. Number one, see God more clearly with greater perspective. We should be able to zoom back in history and see God at work more clearly. Romans chapter one, verses 19 and 20 say this. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. And we talked about that, and when we talked about theology, we talked about natural revelation. But it has ever occurred to you that not only, of course, is natural revelation in creation and sunrise and sunsets and the ocean and the mountains, but it's also revealed in history. 
That's a part of God's natural revelation in which the values that he embedded to the world, right, in which those things play themselves out. So I believe that just like a true scientist who really examines science eventually will be led down the pathway of saying there's gotta be intelligence and design behind this, right? It will lead them to a creator. In the same way, a true student of history will begin to say, man, all of this can't just be random. There has to be something behind all of this. There has to be something greater. And so true students of history can see God more clearly with greater perspective. Number two, theologically informed history helps us to make disciples who understand our God-given mission and direction. I touched on that already when we talked about Ephesians chapter two, but Brian, it all comes back to Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy chapter six, after the famous passage I've preached on many times called the Shema, which Jesus quoted, right, as, as the right, Bible verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. If you go in Deuteronomy chapter six down to verse 20, you'll see this question. When your son asks you in the future, what is the meaning of the decrees, statutes, and ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? So get the question, right? There are these laws. There are these regulations. There are these things that I'm supposed to obey. Why, daddy? Why do I have to follow the rules? Any parent ever hear that before? I hear, I have a 14-year-old son. I live in this reality every day, okay? Why, why dad, why do I have to obey? Here's what's interesting to me. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses writes this, tell him we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. Do you see how he answers the question? Why do I have to obey? And Moses says, history. He answers with a story because this is what God did that reveals what? God's character, that God redeems, that God rescues, that God saves. So in other words, the law, keeping the law is tied to what? God's love for his people. This is what God has done for us. So of course, we know he's for our good. So we desire to obey him. We desire to follow him. And so as disciples, we have to understand our God-given mission and direction that starts with the heart of God for his people. Theologically informed history helps us, number three, to better understand the future by re-examining the past. We can understand the future by re-examining the past. One of my favorite history quotes, you've probably heard me use it in the poll before, is from George Santanea, who said, those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it. We're gonna keep making the same mistakes over and over again. It is foolish to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Ecclesiastes 1, 9 and 10. What has been is what will be, and what has been is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can anyone say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after. There will be no remembrance by those who follow them. So the preacher, right, in Ecclesiastes reminds us of this reality that we can understand the future by examining and re-examining the past, that past patterns are the best predictor of what's going to happen in the future. Number four, theologically informed history helps us to escape our self-centered nature and the momentary fads of our culture. The socialists, Karl Marx said, a people without a heritage are easily persuaded. Translation, if you don't know the story, if you don't know the why things are the way they are, then I can give you a story, I can make a story up, and it will convince you and persuade you that you're on the right path. 
And so we fall all the time for things that appeal to us, to our self-centered nature that make much of us, and to these momentary fads that we sometimes see all around us in our culture. It's very interesting, speaking of Karl Marx, the world should have known that communism wouldn't work in the early 1900s. Why? Because the pilgrims already tried it. In 1620, when they landed, they decided to try socialism and they nearly starved to death. But then wisely, they said, let's give each family its own plot of land so they will raise food to feed their own children. And guess what happened? The pilgrims had more than enough. And so if we pay attention to history, right, small scale, we won't blow it on the bigger scale. And yet mankind and his hubris and his pride, we walk down the same paths over and over again, thinking we're smart enough or we're powerful enough. We're like Karl Marx. I can fool the masses enough. And then you actually read about the way that he lived, the opulent lifestyle that he enjoyed, right? It was really just a ruse to get people to serve in the system that he wanted them to serve in. And so you begin to realize that we fall for things if we don't know the past. Number five, we remember that God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. So in your story, right, we don't feel like much. And yet the story of the vast majority of the millions and millions of Christians over the ages has been faithful obedience, putting one foot in front of another, simply waking up, serving the Lord, serving our families, right? Serving the church and allowing God to do what God was going to do in and through them. And at moments, God used these ordinary people in extraordinary ways. And we'll look a lot of those, at a lot of those throughout the, the, the journey of the semester. We know number six, church history is really our family history. So now we kind of zoom out right from church, from history in general to, to, to church history in specific. Church history is our family history. And let's be honest, there's some good and bad examples. Just like in your family tree, there's probably, you have some in-laws and some outlaws, right? Uh, I was always thrilled when I was a kid and I have an aunt who's in our genealogical society as a family. You can go there. There's a website called Houses of Strother. And I learned cool things like our family used to have a castle in England. We were in the, the, the very northernmost county in England, Northumberland, is where my, the Strother family came from, right there on the English-Scottish border. We were an English-Scottish border clan. And so I'm like, Braveheart, yes, you know, castles, yes. And then I discovered on that same website that uh, we sold the castle and it's now an alpaca farm. <laughs> Not nearly as romantic or exciting, right? Uh, and so there's, there's all these things, but you go on the website and like we're related to some presidents distantly and some other famous people, you know, movie stars, those kind of things. We also have some people who robbed banks, right? And who were on death row. And so it's a mixed bag, but the same is true of church history. And we can learn from examples, both positive and negative, what to do, what not to do in our attempts to be obedient to the word. Hebrews chapter 12 calls this a great cloud of witnesses. And so you have that picture, right, of that stadium almost, right, or, or witnesses watching us run our race. And it's all of those who have come before us, right? And, and so some of those are good examples, some of those are bad examples, but there is this great cloud of witnesses in the history of the church that we can pay attention to. Examples that are mixed bags, right? Things like the Crusades. I need you to know this. Most of what you were taught about in school about the Crusades is false, okay? But there, everything certainly was not all good in the Crusades, but certainly there were shining examples of people who were trying to do this to advance the kingdom of God. 
uh, to deal with the Muslim oppressors, uh, to reestablish right, um, gospel roots so the missionaries could come uh, to places in the Middle East. And so uh, there are many, many examples right, where history is a mixed bag for us, but we need to lean into those to learn what we can learn. And then finally, last but certainly not least, number seven, which is a theological number, right? Theologically informed history helps us to increase our hope that God is moving history towards the return of Christ. And remember, hope we use differently, not like I'm wishful that it's gonna happen, it's going to happen, but it increases our certain hope, our certainty, right, that God is on the move. And we live between the advents, feeling the tension of being between these two worlds. So ultimately, theologically informed history helps us to be better disciples who then can make disciples as we pass these lessons down to our children, to our grandchildren, to those that we disciple. History has some of the best stories. You guys hear me use them all the time, right, in illustrations because it's real. These are real people trying to live out these biblical and theological truths. There is a series that our senior pastor at Brentwood uh, turned me on to my very first year on staff here 21 years ago called The Hinges of History. It's by a historian named Thomas Cahill. And I don't know that he's a believer. I have yet to find any evidence that he is or he professes faith, but he is very sympathetic as a historian towards the Judeo-Christian foundations of our culture. And he writes this, and I think it's really beautiful and profound. I wanted to share this with you tonight. He says, we normally think of history as one catastrophe after another, war followed by war, outrage by outrage, almost as if history were nothing more than all the narratives of human pain assembled in sequence. And surely that is... Sadly, often enough, an adequate description. But I love this. History is also the narratives of grace, the recounting of those blessed and inexplicable moments when someone did something for someone else, saved a life, bestowed a gift, gave something beyond what was required by circumstance. This is the story of how we came to be the people that we are and why we think and feel the way that we do. The great gift givers arriving in the moment of crisis provided for transition, for transformation, even for transfiguration, leaving a world more varied and complex, more awesome and delightful, more beautiful and stronger than the one they had found. And so his whole series is built around this idea of these narratives of grace, and he talks about these pivots throughout history in which things were shifting and taking place. Uh, and so I'll introduce you to some of that along the way. Uh, and his books uh, are listed uh, on your um, outline as well for the semester, which we'll talk about in a moment. So if you're wanting to know, okay, and you're wanting to do some self-study, how do I study history? It seems so complex. This is really helpful to me. This comes from Mansfield as well, although I've heard it in many different places. How do you learn the far off country of the past? You do it by asking these five simple questions. We do this a lot, right, when it comes to, to Bible study. We, we talk about these discovery questions we can ask, right? What does this passage teach me about God? How does this passage point me to the gospel? What does this teach us about man? What questions do I have, right? And what more do I need to study and learn? Uh, in the same way, these five questions can help you dive in to any historical book, uh, help you process any historical moment that you're thinking about, all right? Five simple questions. Number one, ask in the moment that you're studying, what is the religion of these people? the ultimate concern, right? What were they trying to get at? What, what was the biggest deal to them? Because that will drive everything else. Even non-religious people, right, believe in something. Even if their religion is themselves, even if their religion is pleasure, 
or hedonism, right? There is something that is motivating and driving them and that's their ultimate concern. So anytime you study a a culture, a, a, a part of history, ask yourself that question. What is their religion? What is their driving concern? Then number two, their culture will be that religion externalized. So you will have symbols, you will have things they put their money and their time into, right? That's what comprises their culture. And then in that culture, it's shaped by three primary things. What is their law? Well, that's their religion, what they believe or their values codified. What is their education system? That's their religion transferred. And that's something we need to consider more and more in our culture today, as we think about the education of our children and our grandchildren. Because if we think about it, right, a person who is a Christian and is coming at history with a Christian worldview is going to see uh, history very differently from someone with a secular worldview or someone with a Marxist or socialist worldview. And they're going to impose those things right into their teaching because they're going to try to transfer that to the next generation. A a Christian, right, is going to say, the most important thing that I can transfer is a knowledge of God, of Jesus, of the brokenness of man, of our need for him, right, of grace, of mercy, of love. All those things are going to be transferred in a Christian education. If you've got a secular humanist who's teaching, then what is the, the greatest and ultimate cause? self So their entire education is going to be bent towards the self. How can I be freed from the restraints of everything else? How can I achieve my goals? How can I find ultimate self-fulfillment, right? Two very different and competing goals because ultimately that's what education is. It's religion being transferred. A socialist, right, will say, well, the state is the ultimate good. So how do we produce people who serve the state? who don't think independently or think from themselves, right? But will support whatever the state decides is right and good and best. So it just gives you an example as you begin to think through these things of how all of this plays itself out in the various cultures throughout time. What is art? It is simply religion symbolized. In painting, movies, music, Netflix, believe it or not, right? All of the values that are coming and streaming to our devices, right? All of those shows, they carry with them values. Their their religion, somebody's worldview is symbolized and the themes that are present and all of the things that we consume that we call art or low art or high art, depending on your perspective, all right? So that's a little how to study history. We will clearly study history. Let's set the stage for this semester. Number one, from a biblical worldview, of course. The things that we've just talked about. God is sovereign over history, right? History exists within the scope of eternity. God is taking history somewhere. History is a battle between good and evil. We know that. We will study it chronologically with a few exceptions along the way. Flip over to the other page. I wanna give you a highlight really quick. Translation, you can figure out which weeks you wanna skip. Uh, I'm teasing. Hope you hang with us most of the time. But this week, of course, is an introduction. Next week, we're gonna talk about how we got the Bible. Uh, That's one question I get almost more than any other. Is not only what we talked about theologically last year, and again, they intertwine, we'll talk about that next week. But a lot of people are like, you know, they, they watch some documentary on the History Channel, uh, they've read some book, you know, and they're like, well, really a bunch of guys sat in a room and decided what was gonna be in the Bible, right? And no, no, that's false history, okay? It's not true. 
And so we're gonna talk about that next week because it's incredibly important to understand how we got the Bible. Then the following week, we're gonna move uh, and we're gonna kind of begin to move chronologically uh, through the era right after the church, kind of to the end of the church age, right into the first century there. Uh, the battle for the gospel, 100 to 250 AD, uh, the church winning and losing as the church got traction and began to, to shed some of the persecution it was under, but yet it got co-opted by the, the Roman Empire. Uh, then on Ash Wednesday, we're gonna spend some time talking about the church councils and the first pope. Uh, then we're gonna have a special night where we kind of pause, have a worship and testimony night. Luke wants to do a few of those this year. Uh, and so we're gonna do that as kind of a, a, what we call a selah, that word in the Psalms for, for a pause, a time to catch our breath mid-semester. Uh, then we're gonna talk about the multiplication of the church, but also the schisms that begin to take place, the division. Then the week of St. Patrick's Day, we're gonna again kind of take a pause. It happened during the same era, but we're gonna talk about the true story of St. Patrick. Uh, one of Cahill's books, it's one of my favorites, it's called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Uh, and uh, it's, it's pretty amazing uh, to get the true story, which is very embedded in the Christian worldview, versus the secular version of all of these things. And so it's a great example for us, Christmas, Easter, other holidays, how when you really dig, there's some amazing, amazing biblical and Christian truths behind those, those holidays. And then in uh, March 22nd, we're getting into the Middle Ages, the mystics, the monks, and the missionaries. Uh, March 20 the 9th, we'll begin to talk about everything, begin to kind of spin apart uh, during the later Middle Ages, and then we'll have Holy Week, the week uh, leading up to Easter. We won't gather that week. Then we'll get to the Reformation right after Easter, then the, what we call the Age of Revolution and Reason, kind of 1600 through 1750 AD, uh, the Age of Revivals and Progress, 1750 to 1900, uh, and then the, the past century, the Ages of Ideologies and Mission, and then we'll end with the future of the faith, kind of what What's next? Uh, the resource list there, if you'll see in the chapters in parentheses, those come from Timothy Paul Jones' Christian History Made Easy. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to, to skin the cat, so to speak, when it comes to how you divide up these eras. Uh, and Dr. Jones was my doctoral supervisor, colleague of mine, has a really good book. If you're gonna buy one book, it's probably the most accessible book. Very graphic, visual, very easy to read. Uh, we'll be kind of using that as our primary text. Um, historically, if you go to seminary, Husto Gonzalez and his two volume, The Story of Christianity, is about a thousand pages long. Uh, it is the kind of definitive work that all seminary students have to read. He has a super short version. Uh, it's about 85 pages long called The Essential Guide, Church History and Essential Guide. Uh, that's a shorthand version of that. Uh, and then Bruce Shelley's Christian History in Plain Language is kind of the, the best of both worlds. It's a little deeper uh, than the short Gonzalez, but it's not as long as a thousand pages. Mark Knoll is a famous uh, uh, Christian historian. He's now at Notre Dame. Uh, he's got a number of books out, but my favorite one is Turning Points, Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity. Uh, Thomas Cahill, I mentioned, he's got six volumes out in this series. Stephen Mansfield, that's the, the author that I referenced earlier, More Than Dates and Dead People. Uh, Paul Meyer is really well known for translating some of the most ancient works uh, of history uh, into the English language. Uh, if you wanna understand the history of the Jewish people, you need to pick up his essential works of Josephus. Uh, Josephus was a zealot a Jewish rebel who uh, held out at a place called Gamla. I've been there, I visited there. It's near the Sea of Galilee. Uh, when all of the other Jewish men and women leapt to their deaths uh, because uh, the Romans were going to attack them, Josephus uh, was the general and he cut a deal with the Romans. Let me live and I'll be your historian. Uh, but what's interesting is, is we get most of the, the non-biblical information that's historically accurate about the first century and about Jesus from J 
Josephus. So he has a book called The Essential Works. And then Eusebius uh, is called The Father of Church History. And so Meyer has done uh, an abridged version of his, his, um, his works too, his essential works that I would recommend. And then if you're uh, into uh, kind of how Christianity from a sociological perspective uh, really burst on the scene, uh, Rodney Stark at Baylor University has The Rise of Christianity and The Triumph of Christianity. Uh, he also has a really good book on the Crusades. Uh, and then if you're really into Baptist heritage, if you really want to geek out and go Baptist history within church history, Leon Macbeth, who was at Southwestern Theological Seminary, wrote The Baptist Heritage for Centuries of Gospel Witness. Uh, and of course, with every you know, era of history. There's a number of other good books that go with it, but these are the ones that cover uh, a broad swath of time. All right, with that, 7.30, uh, the last thing I would say that we're going to cover is we're gonna cover church history devotionally. So we're not, you're coming to Coffee House Theology, we're a church, we teach the word of God. Brian and I wanted to be sure that every week we root it in the word of God as well. So I've covered a lot of scripture tonight in making our case for approaching history the way that we will, but I do wanna end with this short devotional. And it comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, where it talks about one of the tribes of Israel and they were at a transition point in Israel's history. There are a lot of people who pay attention to these things, who look at the time we're in and we are at kind of the very early stages of what's known as the information revolution. Remember growing up, you learned about the industrial revolution, you learned about you know, these different types of revolutions throughout the history of the world. Well, you and I are living in an unprecedented time, not again in that human nature changes or our sin nature changes or God's grace changes or any of those things, but the speed and the rate at which information comes to us is unprecedented in history. And as a matter of fact, this generation, the generation right now that you're parenting or grandparenting, they are being subjected to a huge social experiment. What happens when you have unfettered access to all of this information? And what is it going to do? How's it going to shape and mold your mind? So again, we're at one of these times, historians, sociologists know that is probably a transitionary moment in human history. And so it's interesting to read this, right? These men of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. So what were the times that they understood? Well, if you zoom out and you look at the history of what was happening in Israel, Bible's full of history, y'all. God embedded his people in a story a story that's moving somewhere. And so at this moment in the story, they knew that the future was with David, the shepherd boy turned warrior who had already been anointed king of Israel, but was yet on the throne. Because they understood the times, they cast their lot, the Bible says, with David rather than with Saul. They were in a time between the times. So the rightful king had been anointed, but not visibly enthroned. It's not difficult for us to discern a parallel in the New Testament conception of living in the already not yet nature of God's kingdom. We also live in a time between the times. Like David, Jesus has already been marked out as the Messiah of Israel and is the true Lord of the world. Yet his reign at this time is not public and visible for all to see. You and I are ambassadors of that. We are representations of that. We are witnesses to that. And so you and I, like the men of Issachar, right, we need to understand the times. That's why we feel the tension we do between the already and not yet. Move this over to the New Testament, and Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, 
but understand the will of the Lord. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So when we look at that word for time, as we've talked about often, right, there's the two Greek words, kairos, this moment in time, and chronos, moment of the clock. The Bible more often talks about kairos and asks us the question, what is this time for? The men of Issachar, right? What are we to do in this time? Well, the calling, right, through prayer was to follow God's anointed king. The calling for us, right, is to be filled with God's spirit every day. That's how we navigate this already, not yet that we're in. If Kronos asks what time is it, we need to constantly be asking, what did God give us this time for? God put me, right, in the middle of this space-time continuum, floating through eternity. I'm right here. What is this time for? How do my choices now affect eternity? For me, for my loved ones, for everybody that I encounter. How can I tell people that there's a bigger story? How can I tell them that there's a God who loves them, who died for them, who came to to rescue them? So as disciples of Jesus, it is critical for us to understand the times that we're in because they contain great challenge, but also great promise, great hope, great opportunity. All right, with that, do we have questions tonight? One or two. Really? This is introduction, people. You're not supposed to ask us hard questions yet. And by the way, we already got some questions. Lee wanted to know, we're gonna cover the 30 years war, you know, those kind of, so if all the questions are that, like the answer is we don't know no, yet. Yeah. We'll, we'll see when we get there, right? What, 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 this is a new adventure for us. That's exactly. And can you tell that we have a historian for a pastor that's pretty fired up about this? Isn't that pretty cool? Wow. Isn't that pretty cool? Man, that was some real enthusiastic applause. They're, they're, so. fi- they're fi- Look at that. Say, say there it is. Thanks. He just wants me to talk about the 30 years I war. That's why that. he's, I, he's I, cheering. I don't even know what that is. I'm a mathematician. Uh, first question. Um, how what it we, is. It was a war about math. I promise. Uh, it lasted 30 years. So I got some role in it. Um, so how do we reconcile our free will with scripture like Proverbs 21.1 that God directs what kings and rulers do? Mm-hmm. We have a whole talk on that from last <laughs> we semester. We do. Uh, there's, a, there's a tension, right? Yep. There's a tension between our responsibility and God's sovereignty because there are clearly verses that say we're responsible for things, but there are also clearly verses that says God has sovereignty over these things, knows what's going to happen. And again, go back to that tube example. God's outside of space and time. Once you kind of ditch that, our understanding of what's going on goes down pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And speaking, speaking from science, my daddy was a scientist, granddaddy was a scientist, I'm a scientist. It's, that's, a, that's a long way to go, yeah. right? That's a long yeah. way to go. Yeah, and I would say, you know, biblical example, right? In Exodus, sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Yep. Sometimes it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? Both, both are possible uh, because God is God, right? And yep. we are not. Within the space-time continuum, right, we're given choice, yep. But in God's working out of things in eternity and his sovereignty, right, he knows the end from the beginning. Amen. Uh, and so, again, we looked at that, and we could go back and revisit that. And by the way, I was going to mention that, too. It's interesting to me, in a biblical perspective, again, the Bible has theologically informed history. For instance, Exodus chapter 1, the, the name of Pharaoh, is he ever given? No. We know from other historical documents, it's Ramses II. Right? Which in your history books you probably studied all about, right? Ramses the second. What's interesting is in Exodus chapter one, do you know the only names that are used there? Shipra and Pua, two Hebrew midwives who refused to slaughter the Hebrew children. And so God said, Do you know what names are important in history? Not the name of the king.
king, the sun king, right? Ramesses II. He doesn't even get called by name in the Bible. But the name of two faithful nobodies, right? Midwives who simply were obedient to God. So that's important why we read the Bible, right? You, read, you, know, you can read the historical version, but then you read the biblical version to understand, right? This is what God wants us to know about history. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so maybe next semester we can study a biblical ap- ap- the biblical application of mathematics, to which someone a little bit later said, Galileo said mathematics is the language with, the, with which God has written the universe. Uh, speaking as math, one of the cool things that happened when I was writing my dissertation, uh, which was in applied math, was at, at some point mathematics collapses in on itself. And you realize that math is just a language to describe things. Right? And so part of what we had to do as scientists was we were, creating, we were discovering new things and we had to have a way to talk about it. And so we used mathematics. But mathematics is no different than Hebrew. And it's just another way God writes his story. One of my advisor always told me when I was working on equations, if the equation wasn't beautiful, it probably wasn't right. Because God speaks beautifully. In grace, I had a Christian advisor. But he said, God speaks beautifully even in math. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Cool? I'm going to take your word for it. I'd rather study Hebrew than math. Oh, dude. Yeah, we, can do, we can do math. I got you. Wait, yeah, yeah, y'all want? Yeah. And I, yeah. Okay, we'll, get, we'll stop. Yeah. Like, he's fired up about history. I'm fired up about math. We, we can go. Um, we recently went to the Ark and Creation Museum. Do you agree with the statement that we must get Genesis right or all of the Bible is vulnerable to doubt? Yes. I mean, we have to get it, we have to get it all right. Um, Just like John or Romans or... Yes, all of the Bible, right? All of it is inspired. And I'm very familiar. I've been there, by the way, to the Christian Museum, very very familiar with Ken Ham's work. Um, And so, yes, Genesis does lay the the foundations uh, for for our, you know, what we believe and and our understanding of the universe and how it works. So I went back to Genesis chapter three to talk about, you know, the the battle. So much uh, groundwork is laid there that we need to properly understand those passages. But yes, all of scripture is inspired by God. And so, you know, Genesis helps us, you know, begin that journey. Absolutely. And, but getting it all right, that's what we studied. That's why we did systematic right. theology. Yep. The whole council right. of the God. The whole council of scripture is critical, mm-hmm. right? So you, we really need to get all right. Um, next week, will, will that include the arguments for and against various translations like NIV or SEC and SEC? I'm not even familiar with that for translation, and, and address concerns regarding them. I, uh, ish. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we can address some of this. Probably maybe your individual questions will be good. We'll talk generally probably a little bit about translations at the end, but yes. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It, yeah, we'd be here all night to discuss every translation and nuance, those kind of things. Right, and they, and they are very new, and they come, there's a, yeah, that's a whole talk, <laughs> um, at least. But we will touch on translations, and if you have specific questions, we'll work to get to those. That's what happens February 8th. Apparently, we skipped a week. Oh, did we? Yep. Oh, well, look at that. That'll be exciting. <laughs> Apparently, that's improv night. <laughs> no, that, that would be bad. Just turn the Holy Spirit loose and see what happens. That's right. Um, <laughs> We'll talk wow. about Bible translations that night. Yeah, fantastic. It just came to me. <laughs> fantastic. I'm, I'm getting and, 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 and how it affected the 30 year war. Yes. How the ESP. And mathematics. The, mathematics. We can't do math. I'd like See, that. we got plenty to talk about. Absolutely. And we'll move on. <laughs> um, curious at your personal thoughts of the teachings of church history from a strictly historical perspective. Example Genesis and now Exodus series by Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I just saw that Peterson was doing that. I, I mean, I always take anything, right? Biblical worldview, 
Always take whatever and take it back through the lens of scripture. Right. And that's why we spent an entire year in theology. So um, no historian, even a faithful Christian one, right, is, is infallible. Right. No preacher is infallible. Um, you know, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, again, measure it through what the Bible has to say. I haven't read Peterson. I've read his, some of his other works. I have not read this to see. I mean, the thing that comes to mind was when Dr. Ortiz was teaching archaeology. Mm -hmm. One of the things he talked about was you see the facts of archaeology, but then there's interpretation, yeah. right? And so you want to be careful that that interpretation is done with a biblical worldview. And that's why it's so important to have someone like Dr. Ortiz working in the field of archaeology. Mm -hmm. So when you have historians, when you have mathematicians, right, that aren't working from a biblical worldview, you need to be cautious, mm -hmm. right? Because they're going to interpret things in a different way than we would as a Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mentioned uh, Thomas Cahill. Again, you right. would read his stuff with a grain of salt. There are things that I patently disagree with that he writes in those books. Um, because he doesn't uphold, I believe, an inerrancy view of Scripture because he's not a Christian. Um, and so he, he state, makes some statements that I just, you know, again, I, I disagree with. But there are things to learn from, you know, his lens and his understanding of history, just like there are in all disciplines. We believe that all truth is God's truth, right. bottom line. Uh, and so as long as we're filtering it through the lens of Scripture, first and foremost, those are our definitive true statements, you know, is what comes from Scripture. Right. If you seek truth, you will always find Jesus. Ultimately, right. yes. Because he said, I am the truth. All right. Um, do you view the book and video series, How Should We Live Then, The Rise and Decline of Western Thought by Francis Schaeffer as a good source for this topic? Y yes, to my knowledge. I have I the book. I have not seen the video. So, yeah, that's, but, yeah, no, I'm, yeah. A, I'm a mathematician, sir. Yeah, Francis Schaeffer, Libri Institute uh, in uh, Europe. Yeah, really committed a group of Christians to studying, um, you know, all things from a Christian worldview. The rate of information stat you gave is scary, makes you, makes you miss the Encyclope Encyclopedia Britannica days. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was enough of a nerd, I just would read the encyclopedia as a kid. Any other, anybody want to confess that with me? Come on, I'm not alone. Yes, I knew you guys were there. Anybody think we're weird? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, thanks, Greg. I, I appreciate that. So, but. It's funny, my boys, for Christmas, what we got them were books. Yeah. Big, big Old books, school. Ac academic stuff in their areas, which is a strange place to arrive as a parent. Um, all right, so C.S. Lewis gives a great explanation of God existing outside of time and mere Christianity. Um, so is Jesus history or future? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, he's everywhere yeah. at the same time, yeah. right? He's God. So he is... He back, is. back to our two. Yep, yep. <laughs> Again, he, he, he's everywhere. And the theological implication... I don't have time to get into it. Anyway... <laughs> It's, it's really cool the more you think about it. Yes. Yeah, that, put it that way. That's a fantastic illustration. Uh, Luke eleven twenty, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being upon us. Should that mean he reigns now and Satan is bound? Yes and no. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the way I would put it. Yes, Jesus reigns now. Amen. That reign is not fulfilled. Right. Satan is bound in the sense that he is on a leash. Satan is not sovereign. He's only allowed to do what God permits him to do. We talked about that last year yep. uh, as well. Amen. Uh, do we recognize Mesolithic, Paleolithic, and Neolithic? I've never met them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're talking about like the prehistory kind of eras, ages. Again, it goes back to your, your view of creation. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I don't spend time thinking and worrying yeah. about those eras and ages because yeah, they're not congruent with my, I'm, I'm my biblical way. worldview. Uh, just curious what we'll be studying next semester. 
<laughs> yeah. Mathematics. Yeah. Mathematics. That'd be fun. I would. There's some fantastic stuff. But I must stop. Um, can we have a math off between my dad, Scott Harner, and Brian? No. Oh, like the old math bowls? Yeah. yeah. No, we're not Come gonna, on. We're not going to do that. Make, that'd be fun. That would not be fun. Um, golly. And uh, suggested resources for reading about the Crusades? Uh, the one I referenced, God's Battalions by Rodney Stark. That's my most recent read on that one uh, that I would recommend uh, to you. I don't, I can't off the top of my head. When we get yeah. there, I'll, there'll be a couple others. Yeah. Uh, if you have middle or high schoolers or just like more storytelling literature-based Christian history, the books by Brandon Withrow are great. I'm not okay. familiar with that. Recommendation. Um, since we were on the topic of history and what was in the Old Testament, I wish we still did have all those books that are referenced in Kings and Chronicles. Me too. Be, but God, it goes back to the sufficiency we talked about last yeah. time, right? We, we have enough, you know, and I, I get it. I, I want to know that's, why I, yeah. that's why, I, why I do math and science and discover stuff, right? Is because I want to know more. But, but there's a finite and a bound and a place where you have to be at peace, right? I've, lear- I've learned to be uh, right, content. And so we have to learn a contentment in what God lets us know, yeah. right? Wendell Berry, I think I've mentioned this several times here, has a book called The Way of Ignorance. And he says, because we can't know everything, right, we have to figure out how to get through this world in the way of ignorance. So what does that mean and what does that do? Hmm. And that's, that's recognizing, right, the world tells you you can be anything, and you can't, hmm. right? We are all bound by all kinds of things, but that's what makes it so powerful, hmm. right? That's what makes us a body. That's why we need each other, right? How cool is that? Sorry. We good. It's good. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I think we're. I think we're there. And the other one is regarding is Jesus. So is Jesus of history and future. Yes. Outstanding job, young man. Oh. Good introduction. Thanks for hanging tonight. It's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah. You mind if I close? So in please prayer? close in prayer. You mind if I close in prayer? Father God, we are thankful. We are thankful for your grace. Thankful for your Son that saves us. Thankful for history. Uh, wow. I never thought I'd say that. But we, we know that we know, Father, that you're sovereign, and we are so excited to see all the ways you work, all the ways your hands are in motion throughout time and throughout the church and and telling us, as Jay said, our family story. So open our hearts and our minds to see you, to see your presence, and to be changed by our encounter with you. Father, do not let us walk out the same people who walked in because we've encountered your truth. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray.